Navy Pier, located on the shores of Lake Michigan in Chicago, has been a staple of the city's history for over a century. From its inception as a part of Daniel Burnham's plan for Chicago in 1916, to its present-day status as a beloved destination for tourists and locals alike, Navy Pier has undergone a series of exciting transformations that make it one of the most fascinating landmarks in the city. Despite its popularity, the structure has many unusual and forgotten features, such as a streetcar line that once ran directly onto the pier. Today we discover Chicago's Navy Pier. I'm your host, Ryan Sokash, and you're watching It's History. So why does Chicago have a pier that's 3,300 feet long with a total surface area of 50 acres? Well, believe it or not, this marvel was part of the so-called master plan of Chicago. And when it opened to the public in 1916, the name was Municipal Pier. But had you seen the state of the river and lakefront back then, the concept might have seemed outright insane. You see, Navy Pier's location would have been entirely different looking before the turn of the century. The mouth of the river was occupied by massive grain silos, which at the time were as iconic to Chicago's image as the Sears Tower might be today. And flowing past those silos was some rather wretched water. From the mouth of the river to Goose Island, Chicago's waterfront was highly industrial, congested and polluted by toxins routinely dumped into the water. Ranging from raw sewage to chemicals, it was a nasty place. Making matters worse, all that waste ran directly into the lake, which was also the city's water supply. And as you might imagine, tap water was frequently causing people to fall ill. The town initially tried to solve this problem by tunneling under the lake and building water cribs further offshore. But ultimately, they decided to reverse the water flow in 1900. The reversal was accomplished thanks to a 28-mile-long canal that ultimately drained into the Mississippi. Now, the other massive benefit of the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal, historically known as the Chicago Drainage Canal, is that it enabled passage to an entirely new commercial market. Although waterborne freight via these systems only makes up a tiny percentage of goods these days, during the turn of the century, it was a big deal as railroads were still developing and trucking wasn't the best option for long haul. Hence, many more ships would be visiting Chicago in the coming years, and a pier was needed. But not just any pier. You see, Burnham's plan for Chicago called for the lakefront to be a place of beauty for the people, reading, quote, The lakefront by the rights belong to the people. Not a foot of its shore should be appropriated to the exclusion of the people. Hence, elements of recreation and elegance were to be a significant theme. The first widely available sketch of the pier's concept was published in 1909, featuring massive diagonal docks for package freight and passenger steamers. Now, when you put this side by side with modern day satellite imagery, the projected location of the pier is where the city's water treatment plant now stands. This is deceptive because it suggests that a natural island or sandbar may have already existed. Yet when you examine old photographs, from before the pier was built, it's clear that there was previously nothing but water. The plan of Chicago embraced the concept of being connected to the rails. It was initially believed that five massive piers 
would be needed to support the city's needs. Still, authorities quickly settled on just one with the following intention, reading from the plan of Chicago. The proposal is to create a central freight depot and common track facilities owned and operated by all railroads in Chicago to handle freight business quickly and cheaply. The depot should be located in an economical spot and equipped to handle all incoming and departing freight trains. The mutual relations of the depot, warehouses, and tracks are expected to produce efficient handling of goods. If perfected, Chicago will have a unique advantage over other trade centers and be fully equipped to handle its destiny. The docks at the mouth of the Chicago River are also suggested for package freight steamers. The original concept called for far more rail to be installed, reading, This center of gravity is at or near the location shown on the diagram. Here should be trackage capable of handling in the best manner all freight trains coming into or departing from Chicago, which are intended to do business other than local and suburban. It should be arranged so that individual incoming cars can be promptly placed beside the planned unloading platform or warehouse where the goods can be handled with dispatch and as large as possible by machinery. At this freight, the center may be the great warehouse of the city arranged about the tracks and service. These mutual relations must produce an economy of handling goods and an economy of the closest sort. If the car and truck service are perfected from the freight train standpoint, Chicago will have an advantage not possessed by any other World Trade Center, and her equipment will be fully equal to her destiny. The top results would be the quick handling of freight trains by all roads and their rapid unloading and reloading. Ultimately, the mouth of the Calumet ended up being a far more suitable location to create this landscape, and hence Navy Pier was to take on a very different form from its original plan. Construction of a single, massive port was about to commence. Burnham passed away in 1912, yet the Harbor and Subway Commission engaged architect Charles Sumner Frost to design the first five piers the city planned to build in what would become Navy Pier. Frost stayed true to Burnham's vision by creating two double-decker freight and passenger sheds in the middle of the pier to serve business needs. Along with classically designed buildings at the head and foot of the dock, to serve as great places for public assembly. The construction of Navy Pier began in 1914, following the approval of the plan by the Chicago Plan Commission. The pier was designed by Charles Sumner Frost and constructed by the engineering firm of James A. Dickinson and Company. The original design of Navy Pier was for a 3,000 foot long pier. Still, the final length of the pier was extended to 3,300 feet to accommodate the growing demand for commercial shipping in the Great Lakes region. The construction of Navy Pier was a massive project involving state-of-the-art construction techniques and materials. The pier was built using a combination of concrete, steel, and timber, and the dock's foundation was anchored into the lake bed using thousands of pilings. The pier was also equipped with a network of electrical and water supply systems. There was also a firefighting system. 
During the construction of Navy Pier, thousands of workers were employed, and they worked around the clock to complete the project. The workers were housed in a temporary on-site camp and provided with food, medical care, and recreational facilities. When it was completed, the construction of Navy Pier, or Municipal Pier as it was known, was considered a significant achievement for the workers, who took great pride in their accomplishment and in the fact that they had contributed to the creation of a landmark that would be enjoyed by generations to come. Construction was completed in 1916, and the pier was officially opened to the public on July the 15th, 1916. Municipal Pier No. 2 opened in 1916, and it was the first to combine the shipping business with the pleasure of public entertainment. At $5 million, the 292-foot-wide pier, built by the city for the people, was the largest in the world projecting east 3,040 feet into Lake Michigan, and even today, it remains the longest of its kind. The opening of Navy Pier was a prideful moment for the city, and although recreation was always intended to be a part of the structure's purpose, the original version was more utility-based and industrial-looking. Train tracks accessed the pier's outer area to transport goods and supplies to and from docked ships. The trains served as a convenient and efficient way to load and unload cargo, later making it easier to supply military ships and installations on the pier. The tracks on the dock were connected to the leading railway network, allowing trains to transport cargo to and from the pier with ease. These days, Navy Pier has an endless slew of attractions from its Ferris wheel, crystal gardens and ice skating rink, to restaurants, light exhibitions, sightseeing cruises, and shopping. But this wasn't always the case. In the beginning, the festivities were limited to parade-type events or ceremonies held in the splendid 18,000-square-foot grand ballroom with a sweeping 80-foot domed ceiling and panoramic views of the lake. Event attendees and workers alike could visit the pier thanks to trolley tracks, which operated on the pier itself via an internal loop, and with time, this became a unique feature. You see, Navy Pier's trolley line was a popular mode of transportation that operated on the pier from its opening in 1916 to the 1960s. Trolley line number seven that serviced the pier was a part of a more extensive network of trolleys throughout Chicago and integral to the pier's transportation infrastructure. At its peak, the trolley line was a bustling hub of activity with trolley cars coming and going from the pier all day long. Visitors could even board the trolleys at various points along the pier itself and enjoy scenic views of Lake Michigan and the city as they traveled. In addition to being a popular mode of transportation, the trolley line was also a significant attraction in its own right, drawing visitors to the pier just to experience a ride. The exact trolley route changed forms on several occasions, at one point being relegated to an outer drop-off area when the ramp and internal route were converted to accommodate trucks and cars. This era was known as the Piers Civic Glory Days, billed as the greatest collection of business and industrial exhibits the city had seen since the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition. At one point, a two-week summer pageant drew in more than a million visitors with thrills like skydiving stunts, speedboat races, and mock pirate attacks. 
Naturally, the pier became a prominent feature on the lakefront, reaching a peak of commercial and cultural success in the 1920s and serving as a bustling civic center, which attracted over 3.2 million people for events such as live music, plays, art exhibits, and more. In 1927, as a tribute to Navy personnel who served in World War I, Municipal Pier No. 2 was officially renamed Navy Pier in their honor. Into the 1930s, the pier saw a gradual decline in its shipping activities, but compensation was made as this allowed the facility to hold steady as a convention center. They hosted the Flower and Garden Show, the National Motor Truck Show, the Automotive Service Industry Show, and other major events. In many ways, Navy Pier had become the heart of Chicago, but it was not to last. The Great Depression struck its blow, and later, popularity would decline in the 1940s when package freighters and excursion boats gradually stopped serving the pier. Then, rail freight and the onset of automobiles and trucks crippled waterborne shipping altogether. As the city's financial situation fell apart, the four additional piers were abandoned. So in 1941, new business was needed. Hope was in sight when the U.S. Navy decided to occupy the space and convert it into the largest training facility of its kind in the world, serving an important role in the Allied war effort. In fact, by 1946, more than 60,000 sailors and Marines had learned to become metalsmiths, aviation mechanics, and diesel operators at Navy Pier. When U.S. forces left the pier, the University of Illinois leased the area as classrooms, a library, and gymnasium for the University of Illinois' first campus in Chicago. This was a saving grace. Having such prestigious tenants upheld the pier's historical significance. Then, by the 1950s, it regained commercial success as a home for trade shows. Astonishingly, the pier also resumed its terminal service when the St. Lawrence Seaway opened in 1959. Thanks to this new passage, it became possible for major Atlantic vessels to access the Great Lakes. Hence, a commemorative visit from Queen Elizabeth II took place, with the late queen recalling, quote, an unforgettable day. Though in the long run, it was unlikely that Atlantic ship traffic would accumulate here as Chicago's port had opened in a different location that same year. Not to mention, air traffic had started transatlantic flights from Chicago, operated by Pan American Airways as far back as 1939. Streetcars were also on their way out. By the mid-1960s, trolley systems' popularities overall were declining as more cities began replacing them with buses and automobiles. And so the trolley line at Navy Pier was eventually discontinued in favor of other forms of transportation, hence the tracks were torn up and removed forever. At this time, Chicago was still identified as the greatest inland port in the world, as more than 250 foreign vessels would dock at the pier during the brief resurgence of the Great Lakes shipping industry. But the seaway ultimately failed to generate enough international trade to keep the pier competitive with the more modern facilities at Lake Calumet. And so it was. The late 1960s abruptly ended the pier's popularity as a major shipping port. This is perhaps the moment of our era that most pre-born 1995 might recall. Navy Pier, seemingly disattached from the city, 
desolate looking and without many purposes. Desperately needed maintenance was halted, and the once grand pier looked more like the set of a horror movie. Burnham's vision was turning to smoke. Architecturally speaking, I believe far more important Chicago buildings have been lost to the wrecking ball. Chicago's Federal Building, Madison Street Terminal, and Chicago Stadium to name a few. But the case of Navy Pier is different. The city acted graciously, designating the entire structure a landmark in 1976, and then, in 1978, hosting Chicago Fest, which drew in millions of visitors with music, food, and entertainment. Guests enjoyed performances from Frank Sinatra, Cool and the Gang, Alice Cooper, and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. This event eventually grew to become the Taste of Chicago. Imagine that, Frank Sinatra singing Chicago, Cool singing Celebration. This not only started Chicago's most famous annual festival, but drew the attention Navy Pier needed to become what it is today, a protected landmark of Chicago. By 1989, the Illinois General Assembly created the Metropolitan Pier and Exposition Authority to manage both Navy Pier's redevelopment and McCormick Place's expansion. The city subsequently sold the pier to MPEA for a symbolic $10, and the state government provided another $150 million to redevelop the pier as a part of the Public Infrastructure Improvement Program. By 1995, Navy Pier reopened and entered its most refined and celebrated status yet. Historic Navy Pier is among the most visited destinations in the world. Since its reopening in 1995, the pier has welcomed more than 186 million guests, including a record-breaking 9.3 million guests in 2006. Navy Pier has enjoyed a remarkable evolution. Initially designed for shipping and recreational purposes, the facility has evolved into a premier entertainment and exposition center. It holds a special place in our hearts, a place of rich cultural heritage and vibrant public spaces for all to enjoy. Whether taking in stunning views of Lake Michigan, exploring interactive exhibits, or enjoying a day out with family and friends, Navy Pier provides endless entertainment, education, and community building opportunities. For generations of Chicagoans, it has been a place to unite and make cherished memories that will last a lifetime. And we'll leave it there for today, but if you'd like to watch these episodes commercial-free, click join. Otherwise, please consider subscribing for new episodes every Thursday and Saturday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Until next time, this is Ryan Sokash, signing off.